Can you hear me, Mark? Yeah. Mark told me seconds ago that he forgot his hearing aid, so as if I didn't have enough pressure on me already, I gotta project for granddad up there. But anyways, it's good to be back with you guys. I hope this worship service has been a blessing to you. Uh, I hope you're excited to be back in God's Word, back in our series through the book of Jonah, looking at this prophet, his relationship with the Lord, and his relationship with the people around him in a very unique time in the history of God's people. But before we jump in the text, I want to tell you about a time in my life when I was a member of the Ravenswood High School football team way back in 2005. And there are several games that I'll remember forever during my time there, but uh, one in particular for a couple reasons. Number one, because for the first quarter, we played probably better as a team than we ever have. But it was only for one quarter because a huge lightning storm blew in. They paused the game. They postponed it. We played it at the end of the year, and we got absolutely destroyed. But the reason why I'll remember this game forever is because I actually got injured. And it was really the only time that I ever went down with an injury while I was on the team. But I remember the ball was kicked off for us to start the game. And like I said, we were unstoppable for that first quarter. We could have taken on the 85 Bears and we would have made a dent, I feel like. But it was first down after first down all the way until we got to our opponent's goal line. I think we had a full set of downs. And I remember it's first, first and goal, the ball is snapped. And next thing you know, I'm on the ground and my leg is completely numb. And I don't know if I just blew my ACL out, if I tore my Achilles, if my gout is flaring up, or someone stomped on my bunion. You know, I don't know. All I know is this isn't good. But somehow I'm able to get to my feet, and I'm able to hobble along, and I'm thinking, okay, just get to the sideline. Just get to the sideline. So I'm, I'm hobbling along, and I'm thinking, hey, I, I can do this. I'm pretty tough. You know, I probably look pretty cool right now. So I'm getting close to the sideline when I hear all of my coaches and teammates yelling, get down, John, fall down, go to the ground. I'm thinking, why? You know, I'm almost there. I'm tough. You know, there's girls in the stands watching me. You know, my buddies are up there. I want to tough it out. But these men were in authority over me. I mean, God had placed them over me. They were my coaches. I had to do what they, had, what they were telling me to do. I mean, they could kick me off the team. They could limit my playing time. But more terrifying, giving my physique at the time. They, once I healed up, they could have made me run at practice. So, of course, I had to do what they wanted me to do. So, being the rebellious teen that I was, the sarcastic teen that I was, I said, okay, you want me to flop here? You want me to go down and act more hurt than I actually am? You got it. So, I threw my hands up right in front of everybody, in front of the home crowd, and went, whoa, and fell to the ground and started flopping like a mackerel. Like I was electrocuted. I mean, the greatest athletic performance of my entire time. And so here I was acting like a clown when I hear a whistle. And it dawned on me, oh, that's right. If there's an injured player, there's an injury timeout. My coaches were probably trying to take advantage of that. So did I do what my coaches wanted me to do? Yes, but was it from the heart? Was it from a place of respect for my coaches? and respect for my teammates and consideration for my teammates. Absolutely not. It was from my sarcastic, sinful heart. But why were my coaches calling me to obey? 
what were the outcomes? Well, my coaches knew that if I were to go down with an injury, I would not only get the attention that I needed, but the whole team would get a free timeout. We'd all get a chance to rest, rehydrate, uh, re-strategize in hopes of scoring the touchdown and winning the game, which didn't happen, but in a sense, my coaches were able to redeem my injury, my brokenness, for good, for me and for the whole team, even through my imperfect, reluctant obedience. So that's kind of where we're headed today. As previously mentioned, we're going to be back in our series through Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. Jonah's called once again to obey the Lord. We're going to look at how he responds. The Ninevites are called to obey the Lord through Jonah's prophetic word. We're going to see how they respond. We're going to see how God responds to all this. And we're going to see how God can redeem brokenness for good, even despite imperfect obedience or even through imperfect obedience. So that's where we're headed today. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, we're going to be actually start in the final verse of chapter 2 of Jonah. So as you're turning there, just some brief recap to set the stage of where we are in the story. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord in the northern kingdom of Israel. If you want to think of the timeline of God's people, the history of God's people, think after King David, after the temple's built, but before God's people go into captivity. The kingdom's divided. The northern kingdom will eventually go into captivity to Assyria. The southern kingdom eventually will go into captivity to Babylon. So this book falls kind of right in between there. Jonah's a prophet of the Lord. He's called to go to Nineveh, which is the pagan capital city of Assyria, the enemy of God's people. He's to go there and proclaim a message to the Lord, to the people. He rejects this calling. He literally rejects God. He gets on a boat. He's fleeing from the presence of God. God causes a storm to happen. He's eventually thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish. In chapter 2, he cries out to the Lord in a beautiful prayer, and God miraculously saves him. And so that's where we are. So beginning in the final verse of chapter 2, going into chapter 3. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, Jonah, the book of Jonah is a pretty fast-moving book. And there's a lot of miraculous things that happen. And sometimes I wish it would slow down and give us a little bit more details. I mean, especially a moment like this. I mean, I can imagine this is a pretty shocking moment for Jonah. One minute you're inside of a fish in total darkness. The next thing you know, you're literally vomited out on the beach. I just imagine him standing up. He's got slime all over him from being inside of a fish. He's got sand on him. He's got seaweed in his hair. Maybe he's got a barnacle hanging off of him, a crab dangling from his ear. He wipes his eyes, and he says, man, I'm glad that's over. Time to go home. But is he home? No. He's only a short day's journey away from Nineveh, the place where he did not want to go. We remember what he did the first time. What's he going to do this time when the word of the Lord comes to him a second time? Let's find out. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to 
uh, Jonah a second time. God's committed to his purposes to Jonah, committed to his purposes to the Ninevites. And Jonah does what he should have done the first time. He gets up off his can and he heads to Nineveh. So maybe Jonah's seen the light here. Maybe he's, he's experienced the grace of God. God has saved him miraculously. He is, the word of the Lord came to him again, which is grace, grace from the Lord. Uh, maybe he's moving towards Nineveh with a renewed love for God and love for his purposes for the nations. Maybe. We don't get a whole lot of details here about what Jonah's thinking and feeling. It's possible Jonah is just going through the motions. Maybe he's thinking about the long weekend he just spent in the belly of a fish, in the, in, inside of Moby Dick at the bottom of Davy Jones' locker, and he's thinking, hey, I don't want to do that again. Let me just listen to the Lord. We don't really know, but all we know is that he goes, and he proclaims a message to the people. And let's look at this message. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's it. That's all Jonah has to say. I, that's After all that he's been through, we remember in chapter 2, when he was seemingly dead, he took up almost the whole entire chapter with his prayer, but when it's time to come to proclaim the message to the people, all he says is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, according to scripture, that's all we've got. Now it's possible this is the message that God had for his people. I mean, that's entirely possible. But it's also possible that Jonah still going through the motions here. Maybe he's still trying to self, you know, he's moving with self-preservation. He's still trying to take care of himself. Maybe he's still angry with the, with the Lord for bringing him back to this place. Maybe he's angry with the Ninevites. Remember, these were the enemies of God's people. You know, we have to draw context clues here. If you consider Jonah's actions in the first few chapters, and especially chapter 4, where we get real insight into what Jonah is thinking and feeling, I would argue that Jonah is just going through the motions here. I mean, look at his message. He doesn't even mention God. Did you notice that? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. From what? By who? You know, what, what's going on here? I mean, I believe that Jonah is guilty of sloppy, reluctant, imperfect obedience. That he's, he's obeying God on the outside, but his heart is not in the right place. And you know what? That is important to the Lord. Our heart's motivation matters to God. It's not just what we do on the outside, but where the position of our hearts are. Jesus constantly, it was a pillar of his teaching while he was here on earth. He constantly challenged the Pharisees' self-righteousness, their, um, their religiosity, the fact that they were seemingly holy on the outside, but on the inside their hearts were far from God. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, you are like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. Now think about that the next time you're at a cemetery. Pick out the most elaborate, decorative headstone and how beautiful it is. And just think what's just a few feet below. Or look at a beautiful mausoleum and just think what's contained inside. 
some pretty, some pretty grisly imagery by our Lord here when talking about hypocrisy. He also says that they, the Pharisees, the religious Jews, they clean the outside of the cup, but they fail to clean the inside of the cup. They're clean on the outside, or, and they're dirty on the inside. Think about that the next time you're at Bob Evans and you finish your sweet tea, and you look down and there's that nasty white milk ring down inside of there. I mean, that's what Jesus is getting at. They appear to be righteous on the outside, but their obedience is skin deep. Their heart's not in the right place. Jesus in chapter 6 said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That is terrifying to me. That is really convicting to me to think about what are the motivations of my heart, even when I'm seemingly obeying the Lord. Can you all relate to this? I mean, maybe you're here this morning, you're serving the Lord, you're in church, you're obeying the Lord seemingly on the outside, but for whatever reason your heart is far from God. Maybe you are angry with God this morning. Maybe you struggled with lust this week and you're not in a place of repentance. Maybe you got in a fight with your wife on the way here. I've done that, you know. I've had to, I've argued with my wife, got out of the car and had to put my Christian smile on and act like everything's okay. Um, maybe you're serving the Lord in various ways, but it's not from a place of love for God or love for your neighbor. Maybe you're preaching a sermon this morning, and it's not from a place of love for God or love for your neighbor. I'm going to be honest, I don't even like you people. <laughs> but I'm up here. No, I'm just kidding. I love you guys. But anyways, if that's where we find ourselves, we need to repent. We need to examine our heart's motivations and repent. Christianity is not only about repenting of the bad things that we do that displease the Lord and harm our neighbors, but it's also about repenting of the good works that we do from a heart that's not in the right place. Uh, it's repenting of self-righteousness. And I would argue that's where Jonah is at, especially if you consider the entire context of the book. But what are the Ninevites thinking here? I mean, remember, these are not God's people. Here's Jonah, this outsider, smelling like a fish. He's probably looking pretty disheveled. He's talking about how everybody's about to be blown up. Uh, I can imagine, you know, if this were to happen today in a lot of American neighborhoods, it, it, you could imagine some hostility. I mean, don't tread on me, pal. Okay, get out of here. Talking about everybody's about to be destroyed. I mean, if he came into my neighborhood, I mean, it wouldn't be long before I got after him with a garden hose. Get out of here, pal. I mean, we don't put up with that in, on 20th Street in Vienna. I've seen the way my wife responds when we catch our neighbors letting their dog poop in our yard. I'm just saying, it's not pretty. Jonah coming up talking about it's about to be destroyed. I mean, it's on. But what do the Ninevites, what do they do? Let's read how they respond. It's probably going to be violent. It's probably going to be pretty angry. Let's see. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What? Wait a minute. That, that can't be right. Let's read this again. And the people of Nineveh believed God. How is that possible? That's a miracle. I mean, we know it's not because of Jonah. I mean, he didn't even mention the Lord. Worst sermon ever. I mean, at least I mentioned God. I mean, that's a little bit pressure off me. I mean... Jonah, he had the history of all of God's people from Adam all the way 
up through King David. He doesn't mention any of that. He doesn't even mention his own testimony about how he was, God had miraculously saved him. So the fact that they respond with the belief in God can't be because of Jonah. It can't be because they're somehow special. These were not God's covenant people. Um, you know, these were wicked, violent people who were not living lives that pleased the Lord. So what's the explanation for this? Well, the only explanation for how this is possible, how the people of Nineveh responded to this message and belief in God is because it's a miracle. It's a miracle of God working belief in their hearts from the inside out. And you know, that's all of us. If all, all of us that have trusted in Christ this morning, we're all a miracle. We're all a, a miracle of God's recreation in our hearts. It's, we're all have been touched by God in our spirits. Jesus said early on in the Gospels, talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's about spiritual rebirth from the inside out. Uh, salvation is a gift, a miracle from God. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 6 puts it this way. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's a, salvation is a work of God. All of us, if we believe in Christ, we're all a miracle of God's rebirth within us. Um, and so when we look at how the Ninevites respond, let's not jump ahead and look at what they start doing. Let's just be in awe of the fact they believe, period. And when we think about obedience to God, the first step is actually this belief in God. When we think of how to obey God with a genuine heart, it starts with a heart that believes and trusts in God, that has faith in God. Hebrews 11, chapter 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, it would have been possible for the Ninevites to start cleaning the house. Oh, God's coming. He's angry 40 days. Okay, let's start. Let's get rid of all this idol worship. Let's get, a, get rid of all this violent wickedness. Okay, clean up the house. God's coming. It's possible they could have had a behavior change. But if it wasn't from a heart of belief and faith in God, God would not be pleased. We as Christians, we believe in obedience, we, but as Romans chapter 1 verse 5 says, it's an obedience of faith. We want to be people not just that do the right thing on the outside or say the right thing. We want to be people, as Cody was teaching last week, that are walking in step with the Holy Spirit. People that have hearts that trust in God. That we want to be people that live in communion with God. And out of that heart of faith, out of that belief in God, come our good works. We do what God wants us to do, what he's calling us to do. And that's exactly what the Ninevites do. So verses 5 through 9, let's see how they respond. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe... <coughs> covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nin throughout Nineveh. By the decree, decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There's fasting. They, they put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a symbol of mourning. They're mourning their sin. They're coming to God with a broken and contrite spirit. There is national repentance. The king gets up. He takes off his robe. They put sackcloth on a cow. I, don't, I have no idea what that means. I mean, give Bessie a new coat. I, I don't know what it means. They're taking it serious. They, and then, so they hear the word of God. They respond with belief. They turn from their sins. And they trust in God's mercy and grace. They say, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They didn't have a lot to go on, according to Jonah's sermon. But they're trusting in God's mercy. Beautiful display of repentance and action, of obedience and action, of heart of belief put into action. And so here at the journey, we take communion every week, and we normally put up a scripture on the board to turn our focus onto repentance, onto faith, as we come back into communion with God through His Spirit, through the Lord's Supper. Um, and one verse that we put up here often comes from the book of Joel. Now, the prophet Joel, in chronological time, took place before Jonah. In the orders of the book of your Bible, Joel takes place before Jonah. But I want you to listen to these words. If you want to turn there, it's Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. But I want to read these words, and I want you just to listen if it sounds familiar from what we just read the Ninevites did. God, through the prophet Joel, is calling his people to repentance. Let's hear what he has to say. Starting in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave, leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Doesn't that sound almost word for word for what the Ninevites did? Almost word for word. How is that possible? Maybe there's more to Jonah's sermon than what, what we read here. Maybe our man deserves a little bit more credit. We don't know. Maybe the Ninevites, they somehow heard this message, heard the words of Joel, God calling his people to repentance, and they're, they're remembering this, and they're, res they're responding to this. They're, they are putting these verses into action. We don't know. Maybe it's just a complete work of the Holy Spirit. Either way, the Ninevites display a perfect response to God, a perfect display of repentance, and it's a way for us to model how we come to God with repentant hearts. Maybe we don't put sackcloth on our pets, but we, we hear the word of God, we respond with belief, we turn from our sins, we listen to God, and we trust in his mercy and grace. We trust in his good character. Perfect display, perfect example for us. But how does God respond to all of this? I mean, he's the main character, right? It's not really Jonah. It's not really the Ninevites. The main character of this book is God. How does he respond? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God, being the merciful and gracious God that he is, that he said he was, that the people of Nineveh, of Nineveh were hoping he would be, he spares them. He saves them. He's merciful and gracious to them. And chapter 4 says 120,000 people were spared from destruction. That is a, a beautiful display of God's mercy and grace towards people who don't deserve it, towards sinners. And that's what I would argue is the main point of Jonah chapter 3. It's really the main point of this whole book. It's not necessarily, I mean, of course, we can look at Jonah's life and his actions, how he rejects God, how all of that, and we can apply it to our lives, and we learn so much, and we grow from it. We look at the Ninevites, and we can apply their decisions and their lives, apply it to our lives, and grow and learn so much. But I would argue it's not what Jonah does for God. It's not what the Ninevites do for God. It's what God does for them. It's, Christianity is not about what we do for God. It's about what God does for us. God is merciful and gracious. God is a savior. God is a redeemer. God is kind towards sinful people who don't deserve it. God redeems what is broken. Now, last this summer, Taylor and I, we started a garden. We had no idea what to expect. We planted some plants. We watered them for a couple weeks. And then it was time for us to go on vacation, go to the beach. So we recruited our good buddy, Chris Mancuso, to water them for us. And we come back a week later. My wife is golden tan. I am pink and sunburnt. That's just how it goes down in our family. But we were giddy because these plants exploded. In a week, they had doubled, tripled in size. And I remember we were walking through, and we accidentally brushed up against one of our biggest, healthiest tomato plants. And it broke a, we broke a huge green limb off of this plant, and it was laying on the ground. And I remember looking at this thing. It was green. It was lush. It had flowers on it that would eventually turn into tomatoes. And just thinking, what a waste. This is so sad. I mean, this thing had so much potential. But now it's broken on the ground, ready to be thrown away. But out of love for this tomato plant, for this broken branch, uh, you know, out of just sadness for what it had, we had no idea. We picked this thing up. Instead of throwing it away, we took it inside, we put it in a cup of water, put it in the window seal. We had no idea what to expect. We were just like, just keep this thing alive, see what happens. And then we come back one day, that cup is dry. Why? Because at the broken part of that plant started to shoot out these white translucent roots. I didn't even know it could do this. But it completely filled up the cup, drunk the cup, completely dry. We filled it up, and it kept growing and growing. Eventually, we planted it back in our garden. And it grew and grew, and it was our healthiest, biggest plant. It produced new fruit. And it was, we loved it. Why? Because God had saved it. it. What was ready to be thrown away is now this beautiful, healthy tomato plant that's bearing good fruit. And so this pattern of brokenness and sin and God's redemption, God's mercy, is all over the book of Jonah. Look at Jonah. This man was a prophet of the Lord. He rejected God's calling for his life. He literally rejected God. 
he committed cosmic treason against God. I mean, this man not only deserved to be thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish, he deserved death. He deserved to be cut off from God's presence, cut off from the goodness of God. He betrayed the king of kings, broken, ready to be thrown away. Is that what God did? No. God picks up this broken prophet, he saves him, and he uses him as an instrument to save 120,000 people, to bring the word of the Lord to the people. Did, did Jonah, did he deserve that? Absolutely not. If we read the first verse of chapter 4, he's angry that they repented. He's angry at God for being merciful. He's depressed and he's suicidal. He did not deserve to be used that way. Did God punish him for that, for those attitudes? No. God is, rede is a redeemer. In Matthew chapter 12, Jonah's mentioned again by our Lord Jesus Christ. The wicked Pharisees, the, the hypocritical Pharisees, the religious people of the time, they come to Jesus and they ask for a sign. The, you know, they're trying to trap him. As if Jesus hadn't been giving signs his whole ministry that point to his divinity, that point to his identity as the Messiah. And Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign. The only sign that you people are going to get is the sign of Jonah. Jesus getting at the only sign that this generation is going to see, they're going to see the Son of God lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin. As Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, seemingly dead, Jesus was going to die and be in the ground for three days, miraculously return. Jesus pointing to Jonah as a sign that points to himself. Jonah is forever recorded by the Lord Jesus as a sign that points to himself. That is redemption. That man did not deserve to be used that way. And yet he was. What about the Ninevites? Did they deserve, okay, they fasted for a week, or for 40 days. <clears throat> they put a potato sack on a cow. Did that somehow atone, make atonement for their sins against God, the creator of this universe, the merciful God who gives us breath and gives us life, did that make atonement for their sins and offenses against him? Absolutely not. The only reason they were spared is because God was merciful. He would have been just to destroy them. And we've, in the Old Testament, we see him destroy entire cities. And yet, is that what God does? Instead of taking these broken people and throwing them away, this, this broken branch, he picks them up, he saves them, and you know what? They're mentioned as well by the Lord Jesus in that same chapter, Matthew 12. Jesus talking to the Pharisees here again. Uh, he says, the men of Nineveh, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. We saw their, his preaching, not that great. And he, get, Jesus getting at the, the Pharisees were face to face with Jesus, God in the flesh, and they had, repent, they had unrepentant hearts. They had hardened hearts. Jesus saying, the Ninevites, they responded to God's word with faith and repentance. And yet, you religious people, you Jews, you have hard hearts when you're face to face with God in the flesh. Jesus pointing to the Ninevites as a positive example of how we respond to the Lord. That's redemption. That's, you know, they didn't deserve that. And yet, God is merciful. And, you know, I myself, I've experienced 
you know, brokenness and redemption in my life, when I was thinking about preparing the sermon, how am I going to relate to this, relate this to the people? Maybe I'll tell a story about my life, how God called me to do something difficult, how I was faithful, and you can do it too. Uh, but, you know, when I started thinking about this time in my life, I realized I wasn't like the Ninevites. I was more like Jonah. I was seemingly obeying God on the outside, but my heart was far from him. You know, Taylor and I, we had a very unique dating relationship. We met when we were adults. We both had established careers. We were serving in, in the ministry in our church in different ways. We had communities, and we lived an hour and a half apart, 100, 100 plus miles apart. Taylor, beyond that, she bought a house before we met. She remodeled the house. She was committed to working with her family at their family business, which takes a lot of dedication. And so when we fell in love and it was looking like God was leading us towards marriage, it became apparent, okay, if this is going to work out, one of us is going to have to make a big sacrifice. <clears throat> and so just practically, it was easier for me to uproot my life and come home. You know, uh, you know, my family's from this area anyways, and I felt like God was kind of pushing me there anyways. So I did it. I packed all my stuff up in a car. I came home. I moved in with my aunt and uncle for um, it was a couple months. We got married, moved into our house. We found the journey. We got plugged in. We started going to journey groups. We started, you know, I went to the men's prayer night, and for all appearance sake, I was this good Christian guy who was making a sacrifice out of love for his wife. You know, I still hadn't found a new job, so I was commuting an hour and a half one way. So I probably looked like this good guy on the outside, but the truth is my heart was far from God in those days. That was a dark time in my life. I was angry with God that I had to make this sacrifice, this big change. I was angry with him that he hadn't answered my prayers the way I wanted. You know, I, if it were up to me, it would have been different. You know, even though my wife Taylor made incredible sacrifices for our marriage to work in different ways that I would argue were even more difficult, you know, my anger was blinded to that, and I, I started blaming her for stuff she didn't deserve. And, you know, it kept boiling and boiling, and eventually I told Taylor, you know, I don't want to be married. And I left. I left Taylor. I went to my aunt and uncle's, I, and, you know, I told her I didn't want to, I didn't want to do this anymore. It's too hard. I was there for a couple days, and, you know, I started to realize, okay, you know, people were going to find out about this. People at church, you know, all of my friends. So, you know, this is not what a Christian guy does. I should go home. So I went home. Was I really, was it because I was repentant for the ways that I sinned against the Lord and wasn't faithful to my wife in staying there with her? faithful to the covenant that I made with Taylor and our marriage ceremony? No. Was it because I was sad for how I hurt Taylor? No. It was just because, you know, I was trying to save face. I was like Jonah, headed towards Nineveh, just trying to go through the motions for appearance sake, obeying for appearance sake. And you know what? Maybe I expected to come home and Taylor to welcome me home with open arms. But you know what? The Bible says a man reaps what he sows. You know, someone, people can only take so much hurt. So I got there, Taylor wasn't there, there was a note on the table that says, if you come home, I don't want to see you. You know, I'm at my parents, my, your stuff is boxed up in the garage, I don't want to see you. So in that moment, it, it was like the scales fell off my eyes. Okay, this is for real, I've pretty much 
you know, in my attempt to preserve my life and my agenda and the stuff I wanted, pretty much threw away the best blessing that God had given me in my life. And I went home, and for all intents and purposes, you know, I was like Jonah in the belly of the belly of the fish. I was alone. I had nowhere to go, and I turned to God. God, in his mercy, allowed me to come to him in prayer. I prayed that he would be kind to me. It looked like my marriage was over. I prayed that he would help me to repent and change from the inside out, and, you know, if, if it would please him to help save my marriage. And so, you know, I prayed that, and, you know, we were separated for about a month, and then, like, it was like a miracle. Taylor and I got reconnected. We got reconciled. God put faithful Christian men in my life to help show me ways I needed to repent, show me my own self-righteousness. And, you know, Taylor and I, it wasn't easy, but we worked through it. Now we're probably better than we ever have been. And it's all because God is grace. He could have picked, you know, I was broken because of my sin. He could have thrown me away. But I feel like God, you know, we're a story of God's mercy and grace. And I feel like, you know, I'm up here. I'm preaching. I don't know how I got up here, but I'm here. Um... You know, I don't deserve to be up here, but hopefully I'm bearing good fruit for the Lord. And so, you know, that's just part of my story. It's not easy to talk about, but God is a Savior. God is a Redeemer. And I'm forever grateful for what He did for me. But, what's the ultimate display of God's mercy and grace? How is all this mercy possible? Where do we see God's... uh, compassion towards sinner on full display well of course the answer to that is in the cross of christ in the finished work of jesus christ so as we begin to close if you would like turn with me to romans chapter 3 verses 23 through 26 and for all you sinners that didn't bring your bibles this morning it's actually going to be up here you know i pulled some springs for you so The ultimate display of God's grace, of course, is grace himself, Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all Jonas. We're all Jonas. Jonah may not be a good example of how to obey the Lord, of obedience to God, but he's a realistic example. He is a relatable example. We all fall short. Either we're Jonah on the ship fleeing from God's presence, fleeing from God's calling on our life, completely rejecting him. Or maybe we're Jonah headed to Nineveh, but we're a Pharisee, we're self-righteous, we're obeying God on the outside, but our heart is not really in tune with God. We're not doing it because we love God. Or maybe we're a Christian and we truly love God and we truly want to live a life that pleases him but when we think about our own righteousness our own obedience it's imperfect we fall short however god is gracious to us god is gracious to us as a gift through the finished work of jesus christ through the redemption that is in christ jesus whom god put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. God passed over Jonah's sins. God passed over the Ninevites' sins. God passed over, if you're a Christian, he passed over your and I's sins. But that doesn't mean it was free to us, but that doesn't mean there was a price. That there wasn't a price to be paid. Imagine if I go into your house today, you invite me over for dinner, and I knock over your lamp. 
in your living room. Shatters to the ground. You can either make me pay the price for that, or you could be gracious to me. It's okay. But you're going to have to pay the price to replace that lamp. Or you're going to have to pay the price of just living in a dark living room. Either way, there has to be a price for grace. And for our redemption, the price that was paid was the Lord Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, God Himself, God in the flesh. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, Jesus lived the perfect, sinless, obedient life that we failed to live on our behalf as our representative. He always did what was pleasing to the Lord. He, even when he was faced with death on the cross in the garden, he said, not my will, but your will be done. As he was being crucified under the wrath of God, he was praying for others, forgiveness. He was quoting scripture. He always lived in step with the Spirit. He always lived to please his Father. Lived the perfect life on our behalf, but he also died as a propitiation by his blood. This word propitiation, it's a fancy theological word that means a sacrifice that takes away the just wrath of God for sins. Jesus died the death that his blood cleanses us from our sins, but it also brings us peace with God. Jesus, God's wrath was poured out onto Jesus. He drank the cup that was prepared for us, as the song that we often sing says. And because of that, we have peace with God. So when we think about obedience to God, as Christians who believe in Christ, we do so with our hearts and our minds locked in on the finished work of Jesus Christ, on the fact that he said, it is finished. And after that, obedience becomes an act of worship. We're, we're responding in worship to what God has done for us. Think about this. You're driving along the road. Your, your vision is out in the distance. And all of a sudden you realize you're looking at your window. Window, your whatever. Your window. Windshield. Windshield. Thank you, honey. And you notice, you start to notice all these little specks and bug guts and streaks and stuff that you didn't see a second ago when your vision was out beyond the windshield. But, you know, as Christians, if we live hyper-focused on our own righteousness, our own obedience, if we look with our vision locked in on ourselves, all we're going to see is our own filthiness. All we're going to see is the ways we fall short. But if we live with our eyes and our focus out beyond ourselves, onto the finished work of Jesus Christ, on his perfect, obedient life, and his sacrificial death that takes away our sin and gives us peace with God, all of that ugliness, all of that brokenness, is overshadowed by the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. So, as we close, remember the words of Jesus Christ when you think about obeying God. This is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Christ this morning, all of you who struggle, who are weary and heavy laden with the burden of obedience that fall short of God's glory and find rest for your souls. Take Jesus' yoke upon you. It's light. Obedience 
becomes worship when we have peace with God through Christ. What was once duty, what was once was required of us is now delight. It's something we do out of joy. And so if I just to encourage you guys, just keep your eyes fixed onto Jesus and find rest for your souls. So let's pray. All right, Father God, we just thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for the finished work of Christ. We thank you for the life of Jonah and how he points forward to Jesus, Lord. We just pray that as we move forward to live lives that please you, help us to help it to be a response to your mercy and grace. Help us to be a joyful experience as we have peace knowing that it is finished, that there is joy in the Lord. And uh, for those that, if there's someone here that don't know you this morning, I pray that they would come to Christ, that they would come to Jesus and find rest for their souls, for he's gentle and lowly in heart. Um, and I just thank you for all of this, and we pray this in Christ's name.